As you grow your business, the more eyes you'll get, the more you need to think about your security. Let me ask you something. Are you vulnerable? Protecting your data is extremely important. Don't be fooled by Instagram. The internet can still be a scary space. At the current moment, the dark web accounts for 5% of the total internet. And all hell can break loose without the right framework to keep your company data protected. That's why today's episode is brought to you by NordVPN. What's VPN stand for? It stands for Virtual Private Network, a service that encrypts your internet traffic and protects your online identity. With a VPN, you can securely access apps, websites, and entertainment from anywhere in the world. Picture a virtual force field around your computer. NordVPN is one of the best VPNs in the market. If you're looking for a peace of mind when you're at home on a private network, this is for you. Also, is that messaging app blocked in your region? That awesome TV show, unavailable in the country you live in? Change your IP location and enjoy the internet with no borders. Y'all know the Canadian struggle. Trust me, it's real. Right now, you have offer up to 68% off NordVPN. Yes, yeah, 68%. Hit the link in our podcast show notes for the offer. It does expire soon, so claim it quickly. Now, let's get back into the show. Yo, you know now like i have like the place right so i can play music as loud as i want uh and i got a like my sister gave me the alexa oh yeah yeah she messed with the alexa, yeah, alexa bro man if you get an alexa so my colleague was telling me like yo you can get the alexa she has an alexa in the kitchen in her room in her living room and in the bathroom mm-hmm. and they all sing together so you can also choose just if you're in the bathroom like you don't know the time right if you're running late you can, alexa what time is it and you can even have channels like, hey, play global news to me as I shower. Or bro, even we can have our podcast as an Alexa channel. Mm, yep, hey, yep, play yep. us everything podcast, you know, and create content just for Alexa. It's a solid idea, bro. You know, you like got, you 15 minutes. Yeah, 15 yeah, minutes. Yeah, actually, I actually have to talk to you about that um, offline, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, like saying your, your business tip of the, of the day, maybe. So imagine batching business tips creating different like whatever and -hmm. i can also have hustle nation so we can have the tip and so we can make just hustle nation the tip hey value value execute in 10 minutes Mm -hmm. boom you know then you can have an ad in there real quick facts yeah i feel you bro all right let's get to it (laughs) nobody is superior nobody's inferior but nobody's equal either People are simply unique. Incomparable, you are you, I am I. Mm-hmm. Simple, easy, I'm plain. Say that again. You are the I. You are you, and yeah. I am I. Yeah, it reminds me of, um, I always talk about Neville Goddard now all, all the time because I consume a lot of his content. Mm-hmm. And one of his concepts is the power of the I am. You understand what I mean? The I am. The I am is consciousness, meaning that as I am, if I want to believe something, let's say we are the best podcasters in the world. Okay. You affirm, I am 
the best podcaster in the world. And the fact that you're saying I am, you are that because we live in a, in a quantum physical world. So when you affirm that I am this, that assumption actually exists in a different quantum physical world, meaning it is reality and is the, it's the unseen, not seen. But the fact that you can't see it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So even if you are saying that, you are that in a way. So essentially, bro, it's like you have to see then as now and now as then. You feel me? I mean, okay. All right. So I hear what you're saying. and I do believe in the power of affirmations. Mm -hmm. But to simply say I am this, which makes me that. I don't know if I can 100% agree with that because if I just say I'm a billionaire, that doesn't mm-hmm. make me a billionaire, but it puts the thought of I'm a billionaire in my head. I swear it can be the powerful affirmation to motivate me to become a billionaire and manifest those things in my life. But to just say I'm a billionaire, that makes me a billionaire. I don't, you know, one plus one don't equal two. Oh, for sure. Like I, I know what you mean. It's, you know, the thing is life exists in consciousness, right? And as we always say, you know, like your ends always run through to origins, meaning who you are today is a, is a, from a conscious level of thoughts and ideas you had from way back, which are showing themselves as now, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like your end, who you are right now was formed from the base of consciousness, which comes from past thinking and origins of like affirmations. And it happens like in the background, like doesn't, doesn't have as a billionaire. So the thing with life, bro, it's like, uh, it acts on like a mental, the, the life is like a mental brain, the, the infinite, the universe. So when we say I am a billionaire, you can say I am and believe you're a billionaire and live in that assumption that you are a billionaire and life will work itself to speed that reality to you right now. So we'll say I am a billionaire, but you're existing and living and existing as a billionaire, right? Like you're acting, walking, working, and doing the activities that will bring that reality to you. Maybe not today, but eventually it'll come forth. And then you'll start noticing you're attracting the people, opportunities, certain environments that allows you to bring that reality to whatever. So for us, we can say, yo, we're the greatest podcasters and believe it. I believe it. I know you believe it, but when I'm studying Neville, there's something called five sensory data, right? Which is like your eyes, your, what you see, hear, taste, feel, whatever. You can't trust that. You have to like trust the unseen Meaning like we have to see that we are that, like we are Rogan. Rogan didn't get Rogan if he did not think he could be Rogan, right? Mm -hmm. So it has to, it starts from that origin of like believing it and sticking to that assumption because, you know, an assumption pondered long enough, it's going to harden into fact in anything. If you ever tell a lie yourself over and over and over, it eventually becomes true. You feel me? Mentally mentally but the fact that you believe it it's because we all exist in our own paradigms of reality so your reality is different like what you see is different from what i see but i live from what i see and that becomes reality but is that reality your your reality or the reality of the world that reality is my reality like 
I can from like, for example, me living where I live right now, I had to change my reality of thinking that I am this person. Right. And I ignored that old conversation, which Neville calls it the old man. And I had to become the new man, which is now. And when I made that assumption, things, activities, people, opportunities brought themselves to me to make this present reality a fact. But it took a month and two months. It just, bro, when I decided, bro, I'm leaving this, things just changed completely. So when you make that mental switch, things just speed up to make it a present reality. Mm-hmm. You know, it's crazy, bro. It's it's legit crazy. And, you know, I used to think that success comes from hard work, but it's more than hard work. It's having a state of flow and believing the things you believe, you know, because mm-hmm. it's all about flow. It's like it's power versus it's flow versus force. I think before I succeeded, but I did not succeed to the degree I wanted because I was forcing it. But now, like, I know life exists in a flow state. You know, it's like you, you, you think about it, you believe and act and just let that thought go. You, I'm not trying to force 100K in revenue or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. I have to flow it. I have to just work, think it, breathe it, relax in a positive, calm state of mind. And that speeds it into reality. Interesting. Yeah. Bro, read. Read as a man thinketh. Read as a man. Right now, I'm on a topic habits, man. I gotta do one thing at a time. I know, I I know that I suggested that to you, but as a man, thank you. I bought it for my dad, and I've read it like a hundred, two hundred. It's such a short book, bro, but it's the most powerful book you can ever read. Mm. I haven't listened to the audio because every time you read it and listen to it, you pick up new things. How old is this book, bro? James Allen wrote this in the 1920s, 30s. Oh, it's one of those ones. Okay. It's one of those ones. Yeah. Okay. Man, let's get it, man. Man, we'd even intro the folks, man. All right. So, hello and welcome to the Hustle Over Everything podcast. This is the podcast where you receive stories, tips, and strategies from entrepreneurs who've done it to grow your business and take yourself to the next level as a person. Later today in the podcast, we have my guy, Edgar Brown. Shout out to Edgar, man. He's the co-founder and CEO of FitDrive. is a mobile app that allows you to start training your clients online. Uh, today, we have him to talk about his whole platform and how he provides a service to a niche community. So it should be interesting, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love Edgar's story, um, what he's creating and everything he's doing, bro. Um, he's focused. He's a hooper, too. In the, in the podcast, you're going to hear us like talking, you know, smack to each other that I can beat him one-on-one. So Edgar played basketball at McGill. He was on the varsity team. Uh, he was a big guy, man. He's like athletic, fit. He fits the mold of like the tech founder, co-founder who'd find, who'd start this app. You know, he's a trainer. He's an athlete. He understands the market. And um, he's passionate about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you think about this episode? Yeah, I completely agree. He's the Jessica Alba of his thing. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like how Jessica Alba is the fit for the honest company. Yeah. Um, he's the fit for the fit drive. No pun mm-hmm. intended. Yo, by the way, do you know how we always say um market product market fit? Product founder fit. Your product founder fit. Is that is that does exist or do we That's just a thing, yeah, yeah. Product a thing, founder eh? fit's a thing. Yeah, for sure, for sure. 
So we're not going to go launch a bank because it's not a product founder fit. Exactly, exactly. The Tristan Walker, I, he talked about it a lot. Of yeah, I, I just thought about that too right now, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah, I think he was dope. It was good, good diving into his basketball takes, um, how he's mm-hmm. playing against Zion, you know. Um, yeah. And getting, like, the little background uh, details there, you know. So it was interesting um, getting his uh, context of, you know, building an app, you know, because there's such a, like, anonymity around what it takes to really bring an app to life. Mm-hmm. You know, I've heard about it on EYL, on um, a whole bunch of other podcasts or, or platforms on the struggle of building an app and making it to life and getting it to users, you know. And um, he's currently doing that. So it's good to see someone in that current state, you know. Um, so to give context, he's he's doing it, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, he's currently building up his own business. So with apps, it's easy to make an app these days like there's so much free resources to do it but building an app now it's like making a website on shopify you know it's like making a website on wix it's that's just a shoe in but how are you gonna get people to download that to get traffic mm-hmm. and all these other things you know so and another thing for the technical apps people just think oh yeah i can get someone from china or india to make the app but there's a lot of nuances that you can get that app built today, but there's an issue tomorrow that you can't go back to that Indian, that person who's developing your app in India to like fix it back for you. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think talking to Edgar, you know, he crafted, uh, not crafted, but he found co-founders who can join him on this mission and who are technically gifted, smart. And, you know, once you have the team, you can move fast. You can, prototype you can launch quick fail fast come back again see what the customer is saying but in the app business it's tough if you don't have that technical co-founder so he goes deep into this building his team the roles what they've done so far and all the things that they're doing to get the app into like a, a market success amongst trainers especially during corona which is an advantage to to launch a business like this because now gyms are closed again so what he said now then applies now because the gyms were closed back then. But launching the episode today, the gyms are closed again and face uh, lockdown, lockdown number two. So he's going to drop some gems into building a community for gym goers and trainers. Exactly. And I think it's perfect timing for him. Honestly, like I think he's in the perfect space for our acquisition, man. You, you think know? so? Hi. Okay. Okay. That, that is, that is a very, that's an ambitious statement. What are you talking? I think you know, if I was good life, I would definitely acquire this company and be like, put this through all my fitness trainers and have them, um, you know, leverage this with their clients. But don't you think that if he gets, if if Edgar were to be acquired right now, I would kind of compare it to how Zuckerberg stole Instagram like 500 days within it being launched. Got you. Got you, you. know, it's like a billion dollars then, but what's the market? It's like, tw- it's like 50 billion mm-hmm. worth. Mm-hmm. So it's like a finesse, right? So, yeah, I mean, listen, that's a, that's a billion dollars is a billion dollars at the end of the day, though. Would you be mad? All right. So, are you going to be mad if someone came and bought the podcast for a billion dollars that sold it for 50 billion? Are you going to be like, at the end of the day, you have more that you have higher than the 1% of the world? The fact that someone can come and offer me a billion dollars for, hustle over everything 
tells me that the 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 10x on it like i mean not 10x let's say but the future value of it is way worth more than a billion i think after that you, you have to assess is this something that i want to be in long term is this something that i see myself doing forever personally am i still in love with the process and the project and what's the vision right mm-hmm. what's the vision at that point and then when you have to when you ask yourself those questions if they're all in line into what you want then it's a tough, tough position to sell. But a billion, though? Imagine getting a billion dollars, you know? Honestly, I think Snapchat's looking stupid right now. How so? Because he asked, Zuck, Zuck's offered Spiegel. Was it $3 billion? Dollars, and he said no. So so what Facebook does, right? He says, listen, I'm going to... Uh, uh, this is going to be in Facebook, whether you like it or not. One, one You have two options. One, I'll copy you or two, I'll buy you, then copy you. Mm. It's those two options, really. He's done it with MSN Messenger. He's done it with, um, what's that live streaming platform that everyone used to use? Live stream. Yeah, it, was, it used to be his live streaming platform. I forget what it's called back in the day. Um, but and It's a Periscope. Is it Periscope? Periscope, exactly. I think Twitter bought Periscope. Yes, but he still copies Periscope. If you look uh-huh. at the Periscope platform. Mm. He still copies them. You know what I'm saying? Snapchat features, they're in Instagram stories. You know what I'm saying? Almost all the features that's in Snapchat right now is in Instagram. They're like stepping above in like in like little steps and then Instagram is just catching up to um, what do you call it? Um TikTok is reels. Like he's literally just copying everything. If you cannot buy it, he'll copy it. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, all right. So do you want to be copied or do you want to be bought? You know. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of options he gives you. But you have to give it to Evan from Snapchat. You know, he he did build a, a proper company, though. He did. But what's Snapchat's net worth? Uh, I have to check. I can't. Let's see. What's their, what's their market value? Snapchat net worth. Snapchat net worth. Look it up, look it up Jamie. Tell us what you think. All Jamie, right. can you pull that up? <laughs> Four billion. So, I mean, he's added a... Total equity billion. is two. So total equity is two point two billion, and total assets is four billion. You know what I'm saying? So now here's an article. I'm reading the headline: Snap has lost more than twenty billion in value since its IPO. Hmm. My mom actually invested in Snapchat when it came out. She was so bullish on it, but she hmm. legit lost a. Why do you think that is? I think my mom at the time when they were going public. She was seeing no, no, how. No. Oh, why do you think? Why do you think this lost its value? Well, um, I don't know. I have to check out this article. I don't. I don't. I don't use Snapchat. I don't know. But do you know why it's lost its value? I'm gonna take a wild guess. All right, go for it. Swing for the fences. Because the biggest platform in the world right now mm. is currently stealing all of its all of its tech. Mm. That that's like the pretty if if. Zion's house paying like LeBron, like Le- LeBron's gonna lose his value. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's as well too. LeBron is in his LeBron's going to LeBron, but people gonna be like, "Oh, there's another LeBron in the league. Let's start putting shifting some of our marketing dollars to to Zion now." You know what I'm saying? And LeBron's gonna look at that, and and in the in the market, people are gonna start things are gonna shift a bit. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, LeBron is now in his twilight years. You know, Zion is going to get that. But does Zion 
it's the intangible. Does he have the personality? Does he have the charisma of LeBron? Does he have the clean, squeaky image of LeBron James? You know, these I'm are talking, the things- I'm talking the inputs and outputs. You know what I'm saying? Can can he get the same numbers that LeBron does? You know? Um on the court or on the court. Or economic you know? value to like cities, arenas, uh entertainment channels. Exactly. LeBron, LeBron, every time you turn on ESPN or Fox, LeBron is the economy, bro. He is, he's the golden goose. He's, he's the cash cow. Mm -hmm. LeBron gets impression. I think they Mm -hmm. do the research. Like if we talk about LeBron and find ways to bring him in topics, we'll get impressions. And that's why they never talk about the Raptors, man. We won the chip. We we never heard a lick about that chip of the Mm -hmm. Toronto Raptors. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, how can LeBron next year come back with the Lakers and win the championship? Like, That's we just won the chip here in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And, well, the thing is, as well as because Kawhi left, I feel like there isn't there isn't a marketed star. Like, Kyle Lowry, I don't know why, but they won't put them, the they won't push the button on Kyle Lowry. Like, the, they were pushing DeMar DeRozan or the way they were pushing um, Kawhi, you know. The thing with Kyle Lowry, Kyle Lowry is, he's a great player. Right, but he's the greatest. Rapper. <laughs> I knew about the shit on. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not shitting on Lowry. I right, love right. Lowry. Lowry is the captain. He's the heartbeat of the Raptors. But he's gonna go down as the greatest Raptor of all time. But he's not a star. Like he, he, Lowry, he overachieved for his career, with his stature, his size, and everything, and whatever. He did not come in with the intangibles of athleticism or shooting ability like curry unless i'm like westbrook and etc he didn't have any or dame dollar that dame dame lillard he had nothing mm. so he willed himself to be a champion and that as toronto people like we love the we love players who grind hard who play who go to war yeah, and that's why larry's he's a heart he's a heart so larry's gonna get his jersey retired one day after the scotia bank and um yeah, it's going to be a good one, man. I'll, I'll be at that game. Hopefully he doesn't retire. I think he'll come back and get his jersey retired. Yeah. yeah. But back to what you're saying, though. What's Snapchat up? lost $20 billion in value. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and it's because of the copying from, from well, not just Facebook be. now. Um, sorry, not just Facebook with Instagram, but Facebook as well. WhatsApp, um, YouTube, mm-hmm. and LinkedIn all have stories now. They yeah. all have copies and stuff. There's always a joke going around. Like, next thing you know, Excel sheets have stories. Exactly. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's ridiculous. You know? I, I mean, the thing is, bro, what is the fascination about stories? Like, I don't really... WhatsApp has stories. I see all it's my aunties time. using that. It's real time. You know, mm. it's real time interaction with someone else's life. So, I think that's what it is, personally. I, I There's stories on LinkedIn. People just don't know how to use it yet. Yeah. Uh, Stories on LinkedIn is so cringe. They're so trash, bro. I I just, I don't even look at that tab up there. Stories on LinkedIn. Don't. But that presents an opportunity to create something that engages your network. It really puts your name, especially if your name keeps popping up at the front of the stories, you're always top of mind. Mm -hmm. So if you create value on that, bro, like you can legit, you know, slap uh content out there and and build a uh, thought leadership 
Word. Well, I mean, from my experience, the way algorithms work is that whatever new feature gets put out, whoever uses that new feature the most gets the most um, exposure from the algorithm. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so. This is- Even putting out content every day, like posts. That's why I think Swish, Swish grew his following on LinkedIn like that. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, bro. Yeah. All right, man. Let's get to the business tip of the week. Yeah, what you got cooked up today? All right, man. So today I thought I'd uh, pull it back a bit because we're in phase two. Um, a lot of businesses are, are getting back to thinking, what the hell do I do now? And then last week we kind of talked, we kind of like freestyled on what businesses can do. And I thought, all right, how can I break this down in a more concise way? Let's get some real nitty gritty ways of um, giving tangible advice for people. So I did a little research for, for y'all. Um, and I came across the Harvard Business um, Review and got some uh, COVID, you know, tips for people to keep in on, on their mind when it comes to uh, what they can do to pivot properly, you know. So there were three tips that um, Harvard Business Law suggested, and I want to get kind of get into them and have some examples as well. So number one is a pivot must align the firm with one or more of the long-term trends created or intensified by the pandemic. This includes remote work, shorter supply chains, social distancing, consumer introspection, pardon me, and enhanced use of that technology. So one thing I thought interesting there was consumer introspection, you know, and that brought me to um, one of my favorite brands right now, Pierre Moss. Have you heard of Pierre Moss, bro? Yeah, uh, Carbito. Exactly. Carbito, bruv. Mm-hmm. So um, Pierre Moss is a brand run by a Haitian, uh, by a Haitian gentleman named um, Kirby Jean Raymond or Raymond. Um, he's a black designer, or just a designer out of New York City, Brooklyn. And he has an incredible um, line called Pierre Moss. And it's selling out during Corona. It was selling out during... Um, the early parts of Corona, and it's continuing to sell out throughout uh, the second wave as well. What I was interesting about it is that what is what he touches on. You know, he has a great interview on the Leaders Create Leaders channel on YouTube. Feel free to check that out. Um, I know some that's you, Owen. Um, and what he did that was very uh, innovative but dangerous is the fact that he dialed deeper into being a black creative in both the good ways and the bad ways in terms of you know highlighting police shootings and um the negative sides of being a black man in america or black person in america he got you know uh let go from a whole bunch of stories he lost a lot of accounts but now with his deal with reebok slash adidas or i guess reebok is to keep it centered for y'all um he's bounced back through this collaboration. So what he did is that he kind of goes deeper into what it's like to be a black person and having that as the uh, focus kind of attaches to your psyche as a person. So people are a lot more inclined to buy that versus just a streetwear brand for no reason. You know, I'm, I want to buy that. I want to buy Spurgo. I want to buy uh, the lines that talk to me as a human, you know, before it was what this looks fly. Now it's what speaks to me, what 
actually communicates value through my psyche. So those are some things to think about when it comes to your brand. What's the actual message behind it? Not just looking good, but what's behind the look good, you know? Um, second tip is pivot must be lateral. The, t- the pivot must be a lateral extension of the firm's existing capabilities, cementing, not undermining its strategic intent. So an example of this is Airbnb. Surprisingly, they've been uh, keeping a float throughout the pandemic. And you think that Airbnb would be in like the gully, you know, um, trying to figure it out because Airbnb is structured around human connection, you know, through being in someone else's space. What they've done, though, is that they've pivoted through uh, giving host financial and uh, potential guests actual content online in terms of virtual tours, um, lessons on how to do things from magic to cooking classes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's been very profitable for them. Um, On the other hand, they've also been giving a lot more content for what to do when it comes to traveling through the pandemic. And a lot of people have been going to them as a resource for what they can do with traveling. Um, Also, what they've done is given a safe haven for people that have gotten COVID-19 and need somewhere to stay or um, the healthcare workers who are on the front lines um, and they need to stay as well. And they've been able to be a safe haven for those people as well. So Airbnb is a prime example of pivoting to actually serve themselves uh, for the pandemic. So uh, I thought that was a good example of somebody who's pivoted and pivoted well. Other examples of people who um, started selling uh, alcohol, um, like rubbing alcohol and hand sanitizer through their distilleries, um, that's been like a real common one. And of course, there's the huge um, mask trend of, you know, selling masks to, to, the, to their audience. Last one, though, I think that was really interesting is um, pivots must offer a sustainable path to profitability. Um, one that preserves and enhances brand value in the minds of consumers. So an example of that is Quizbit. Quizbit was originally a bar quiz slash trivia company. You know, when you go to a bar and you see those kind of like casino-ish type games at the counter where you'd be, you know, just like drinking and you kind of play a little game real quick. That was Quizbit. You know, they've pivoted uh, tremendously to offering quizzes to charities, to churches, to um, businesses, so people can actually get a fun interactive quiz for their team members, for people who interact with their charity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, even for funeral homes sometimes. So um, it's a really interesting way of pivoting, and it still kind of goes with their brand image of we provide quizzes, trivia, et cetera, et cetera. So one thing you could think about is how can I really provide a pivot that stays true to my brand, but still provides more service going forward, you know? So those are some of the things that I think were extremely good tips from the Harvard Business Law Review or Harvard Business Review. Mm-hmm. And I could quickly run through some um, cool business pivots. Um, Cards Against Humanity, they um, pivoted from their physical cards to creating a family version with down, a downloadable game so we can play online. Um, the, and then the generous uh, game, I don't know if you heard a heads up. You familiar with heads up, bro? 
um, no. What's heads up? So heads up is like that game that used to play in the Helen show where they put like a the oh, phone to their head. Is this charades? I don't know if you it's call like it a, it's like similar to charades exactly. And then they try to like you know um, guess what it is and try to like say it without saying the words. It's like a blend between charades and uh, mm-hmm. taboo. Mm-hmm. So there's that, and they have that through Zoom, so you can play with multiple people online. You know, so when it comes to pivoting nowadays. Some of the things that I wanted to mention is focus on delivering more value and getting people in through their internal motivations. Pierre Moss connected to the internal motivation of being a black person in America or just a black person overall. Same another oh another one I did I wanted to mention. I thought it was extremely cool. It's this candle company called uh, Cord Candles. Have you heard of this company, bro? No, no. I actually right, bought so candles this, the other So this day. one's really innovative. And I thought it was interesting. <laughs> um, and this kind of ties back to the first tip of using new technologies or enhanced technologies. This is a candle company that has playlists to go with their candles. You know, because um, of course, you know, when you candle it, you're in your zone already. So having a place to go with that is this, you know, mm-hmm. chef's kiss on top. You yeah. know, so uh, that's genius. Um and I thought this was a great example of using technology to enhance the experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and this could go with a whole bunch of things. It could go with food. You know, imagine you order from the Jamaican spot and they have a Jamaican playlist to go with it or, or, or a reggae playlist to go with it. You know, it could say it's a real, more uh, intense event, you know, when you're eating the, the, that food. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that kind of wraps up the business tip of the week. Yeah, I like what you said with, uh, sorry to interrupt you, but um, pivoting towards um, profitability, right? Uh I think one of the things businesses in general or what we've been taught in entrepreneurship is pivoting for the sake of pivoting because a solution doesn't work. Mm -hmm. But this pivoting towards even profitability, like let's say if you're in a business that's been plagued by the pandemic, Mm-hmm. You just can't pivot because of pivoting. It's like, how can we not just be profitable, but how can we sustain this after we come back to reality of mm-hmm. no pandemic or Corona? Because if you pivot without thinking about that, then you're stuck with a solution that's only serving right now. Mm-hmm. And then you come back, you try to pivot again, but it's already, it's not with the spirit of the times anymore. The world's changed. So you're going to see businesses either evolving and thriving or they evolved just as a temporary fix. And then once it's over, they can't go back to what they were because tastes and natures of customers and customer behaviors change. So how are you going to build your business there? Yeah. You know? So yeah. it's going to be interesting. It's going to be Yeah. I was thinking that, you know, like with the example of the brewery, I'm doing the alcohol and the rubbing and the um, hand sanitizer. It's like, all right, that's cool. But are you going to keep doing that? You know, I feel like, well, that was a, uh, bit of a, a plugging the, the the problem you know because i felt there was a huge like shortage of hand sanitizer at the time so yeah i mean that's kind of this uh, an example of this you know meeting the quick demand but a lot of the businesses kind of just like sh- completely shifted and are doing something different like i don't know what's a good example of that i don't know i can't think of one off the top of my head but the ones that just 
you know, are pivoting for no reason and just doing something completely different to make money, it's going to be hard for them once Corona's done to try and get all the way back to what they regularly did. That's a fact. Yeah, man. Customers are way smarter now than ever. Mm-hmm. Like we can spot, we know brands. We, we, um, that's why I'm excited to talk to Mark LaFleur tomorrow because he is a big brand person and mm-hmm. customer experience. So customer experience, personalization, people want to feel as if they're part of a family and how are brands going to be able to do that moving on forward. Right. So it is going to be interesting. It's going to see how people adapt, but um, yeah, man, business is hard, right? Who, who would have thought some businesses are going to go out of business this year coming in. It just shows you that the anything can change in a matter of seconds, you know? So how are we planning for tomorrow? How are we planning for disaster? These are all things that, you know, we got to talk more about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, shout out to Expedia. <laughs> what happened with Expedia? What's what's the... Expedia's gone bankrupt, bro. Expedia's oh, done. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now it's coming back to me. Now it's coming it's back. done out here. You know, because they're affiliate marketing. And, like, who's going to Expedia to go travel right now? No one. No one at all. Yeah, bro. So, yeah, guys, you know what time it is. It is time for that hustle nation tip of the week. You know who I am, Mr. Hustle Muscle, about to deliver this sermon for your ears. So, when we think about productivity, we always think about getting organized, which is an important fact of being productive it's like if you can't have organization you can't have clear thinking and if you can't have clear thinking you can't have seamless execution so one of the things that i've discovered recently is the pomodoro technique and i gotta give a shout out to my friends uh martin logan and rodney for inspiring me with this technique and the different productivity tools that they always allow me to discover and use so the Pomodoro Technique, it's a time management method, uh, which was uh, developed by Francesco Cirillo uh, in the late 1980s. And the technique uses a timer to break down work into intervals, traditionally about 25 minutes in length, and uh, they're separated by short breaks. So essentially, you have a timer, you press start, you work on that task for 25 minutes straight without any distractions, the timer is going to ring. You take a five-minute break, and then you start your next uh, next task. So a Pomodoro, what it is, it's the interval of time spent working. And the goal of the technique is to reduce the impact of internal and external interruptions on focus and flow. So sometimes when you're working, you might be distracted by your iPhone. You know, you get an Instagram notification message. Someone's liked your photo. Oh, you got a text. Oh, you got a Snapchat. Oh, you got an email. Here's Amazon telling you what's on Prime today. Oh, here's uh, Netflix recommending a show. So many distractions uh, which are interrupting your flow and your focus and you can't even get things done. So I actually did a time. Uh, I looked at the time I spent on working, on looking, working, looking at my phone, scrolling social media, and I, and I accumulated all of them. And I was like, man, I spent about like 50 minutes a day of just mindless looking at my screen. And that is a lot of time to get tasks done. And it's not even doing anything towards um, productivity. It's just 
you're looking at your phone because it's a part of your habitual way of living. So what a Pomodoro is, it's, a, it's an indivisible. So when interrupted during a Pomodoro, either the activity must be recorded and postponed, like, you know, or the Pomodoro must be abandoned. So you can't start the task and then stop because when you do that, you just have to completely disregard it because the key element of productivity is flow. And if you're not in a flow state, you can never get anything. One thing we I spoke about earlier is a concept of force and power is power versus force. Whenever we always want to be productive, we're always thinking of a way we can get productive. You know, you take certain pills, like uh, what is it called? Like your just to stay focused. When it comes back to me, I'll mention it. Um, you you turn off everything. You turn off your phone. You whatever, and you say you're gonna focus. But that is actually counterproductive because you're forcing it. And by the time you're forcing, you can't even think what you're doing because you're in a forced state of mind to stay productive. So one of the tools that I started using is called uh, Tick Tick. So my friend Martin put me onto this, and what it is, it's a tool that allows you just to label all the tasks in different categories. You can put in your calendar. And you can click on a task and you say, use Pomodoro and the timer is going to start. And once it starts, you work on that task and you complete it and then you move on, you take a five minute break. So these tasks could be, you know, after you're done, um, after the task is completed in the Pomodoro, any time remaining could be devoted to other activities such as, you know, reviewing and editing the work that's just been completed. Uh, review the activities from a learning point of view. So, you know, what did I learn? What could I do better or differently? Third, you know, view the list of upcoming uh, tasks for the next planned uh, Pomodoro time. Block and start reflecting on or updated tasks. So during this time, you can see how you allocated your time and how productive you are. This Sunday morning, I woke up, made breakfast, I, I worked out, made breakfast, and I started on preparing for upcoming interviews. And I used to realize that preparing for one interview would take me one hour, but using the Pomodoro, I can com- I completed one interview prep in, in 25 minutes, which was just remarkable because I was so in a state of flaws, not distracted. I kept my phone in the kitchen so no one can, I can see any notifications. And then I started the second interview prep and I got two prep done in one hour. So it was just powerful how this whole thing works. So check out the app, TickTick. Uh, we can put the link to in the description of the show notes and use Pomodoro technique. You know, a lot of us are studying at home. We're doing work at home and there's so much distractions. But how are you allocating these 25 minutes to certain tasks? You can actually get so much done in 25 minutes, guys. Like it's crazy when you're focused and you have no distractions. So the tip of the week is try the Pomodoro technique. It works. It's effective. You get so much done in little time. If you need a break, you have the five-minute break, which is a lot of time, too, when you want to get a coffee, look at your phone, send out a tweet, reply to a message, and then you get back on the grind. So, guys, coming into this week, stay focused. Um, the power of con- concentration is crazy. It's crazy how we can get so much done with concentration and a lot of us have that power inside of us, but we just have to tap into it and let it come out of us by choosing to do it. So take that in, check out Tick Tick. And um, yeah, that is the Hustle Nation tip from the week from me, Mr. Hustle Muscle. 
Let's get our hustle on this week, guys. Boom. Boom shakalaka. <laughs> I haven't heard that in so long. Boom I know. It's a, it's an oldie, bro. I pulled that out from the bag. Yeah, you know? man, I pulled that from the duffel bag. Word. But I heard you good know? things about TikTok, though. Uh, I heard you did, eh? Yeah, I've heard good things about TikTok from other um, agency owners. So, um, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah I'll go check I, that out. I know, I know you do a lot of work with balancing a lot of things, and I thought, man, you would crush it with this. Yeah, it's about to get hectic, man. Preparing for yeah. Black Friday. Yeah, and, you know, this is the fourth quarter overall. It's about to be hectic, man. Are you, so, are you gonna be clutch? Oh my jeez, listen, man, it's getting hectic. The consultations are starting to come in. You know, I got agency yeah. shit to do, so when it's clutch see. time, I trust mine, bro. Yeah, what are you saying? When it's clutch time, I trust mine. Do you trust yours? Do you trust your bag, bro? Do you have a bu- duffel bag or a string bag? You have to make that decision. What's in your bag of moves when it's crunch time? <laughs> I feel you, fam. What's in your arsenal? That's a fact. <laughs> All right, y'all. So let's hit these housekeeping items and hit, hop into the pod. Yep. Hey guys, before we hop into the podcast, we have a few housekeeping announcements. For free to support the podcast, if you're on Apple, make sure you rate and write a review about our podcast. This makes a huge difference. On Instagram, make sure to take a screenshot and tag us in their Instagram stories. It makes a huge difference. It helps us share the podcast out and expand the community. On Twitter, we're at 247Hustlers. And on Facebook, we're Hustle Over Everything. Guys, we were busting our ass, especially Owen, working on their weekly newsletter. It's called The 24-7 Hustle. It covers news in business, music, and culture, all through the lens of entrepreneurship. And for our paid options, guys, we have some great merch on the store. Check it out at hustleovereverything.co. And lastly, our proud to pay program is linked in the description down below. Now let's hop into the show. All right, man. Edgar Brown, bro. It's a pleasure to have you on the show, man. How are you doing today? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me. Oh, man. It's been, uh, it's good to have you on the show, man. I've watched you uh, build Fit Drive and actually saw like the development of it over time, like just kind of like hearing the word about it. A couple of people I know in the DMZ, like Leon and everything like that. And uh, people also mentioned you before reading your articles on, on Forbes and all these other publications, man. Like, that's huge. Like, how did you even manage to get on Forbes? That's such a dope look. Thanks, man. I mean, it's been a really long journey. So I think a lot of the things that you may see now are just fruits of work that's been put in over the past few years. And just some of those things have come to light most recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just, it's, it's been a process for sure. Yeah, man. I mean, I think every entrepreneur dreams about being on Forbes. Like, imagine just there's something about Forbes that's just like a stamp of approval, you know? Like, it's like the official place of like the world's richest people, of like the top entrepreneurs in the world doing something. And uh, how did it feel like when you like actually saw like your face on like a Forbes publication? Um. So that that's an interesting topic. 
I think media within entrepreneurship is something that gets a lot of attention because mm-hmm. you see someone featured in one of the major publications and then you just assume that that person is at a certain stage yeah. uh, where many times that's not necessarily the case. Like a publication can reach out to you for a specific use case. Let's say like most recently with the features around Biff, it's just the organization, they have their own stakeholders, they have their own outcomes that they're trying to achieve, and they're going to seek out people Mm -hmm. that can fit that outcome. So let's give the example of Forbes. That came through uh, one of my old professors, actually, at McGill University, who's also a Forbes leadership contributor. Mm -hmm. And his focus is on um, individuals who are, I guess, excelling in certain areas. So he interviews a lot of CEOs. And so the timing for covering my entrepreneurial journey around the time that I was still at McGill just fit into the types of stories that he was already covering. And so anytime you think about media, you just want to think about who is the person actually behind the publication? What are their incentives to put out a story or to get a feature? And then how can you align what your initiatives are with their actual success in their role? Yeah, man. How did that change the business once you you got featured? Did you get a lot more sales then or did you not see as much of a result? So that's the thing again, many people would believe that uh, a feature in a publication drives a lot of actual business traffic. And that's true in some cases. So let's say you get featured in TechCrunch for if you're like a B2B software company, then that will drive actual adoption if you're early. For us, our business focuses on empowering trainers. So we offer a platform for them to manage their clients, both in person and remotely. And so the type of audience that Forbes is catering to actually isn't our customer base. Mm -hmm. Uh, What it has done is provide a lot of, let's say, social credibility and talking to investors or advisors or, or warm intros. It's a lot easier to make that clear. Um, so third party, but in terms of sales, it actually didn't drive much. And that's the case for most media that you see. It's one of those, like, if you're an entrepreneur, like everybody wants to be featured on TechCrunch because everybody reads TechCrunch. You're on TechCrunch. It's like either you raise some money or you're being acquired. And uh, it's like the, I think for tech, you know, put aside Forbes, it's like the creme de la creme of all uh, media coverage that you can get for your startup. So everybody fights to get on TechCrunch and it's like, it's like the legitimate stamp of approval. Like when you're on TechCrunch, it's like, you're legit. You're like a entrepreneur on the rise. You're doing something noteworthy and they want to cover that. So that's amazing. But let's go back a little bit, right? Uh, Let's talk about you uh, and your journey into entrepreneurship. You know, you went to McGill, you played on the varsity basketball team. Uh, What was it like being like a student athlete in McGill? Yeah, um, those are some really good times. So I'm always happy to to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, McGill was an, a, an amazing experience for me. So I was actually just coming off a career change. Um, I studied health sciences in CGEP, which for anyone listening that doesn't know about CGEP in Quebec, instead of doing grade 12 and what's called grade 13, you go and do uh, two years at a separate school where you can take university level classes, test them out, and then actually make a commitment to your undergrad afterwards. 
And while I was there, I was actually still studying health sciences because my, my dad's a dentist. And so I was going through that field and realized that that was not the path that I was going to go down and that I was actually attracted to the entrepreneurial aspects of running a dental practice or running your own business. Mm -hmm. And so McGill for me was an opportunity to pursue that um, full time really and, and expose myself to the field of business, which is what I did going to, to Days Hotel and, and later on doing business and computer science, but also really pushing for sport, which had played a huge role in my life playing for the team. And so many learnings have come from sport during my times there. So you, you played you played ball, right? I mean, uh, everybody wants to play. Did you want to go D1? Uh, what were your ambitions with basketball? Yeah, um, I just wanted to work hard at the end of the day. Yeah. I just wanted to play as much as I could at whatever level I could. Um, I honestly didn't really even consider going to the States too much, like early on some of my coaches, especially like the ones who were pushing for me to go to academic schools in the, in the States, they had kind of seen basketball as a way to get there. Um, but not, not to play professionally. No, for me, it was always just to, to live my passion in playing sport, to take mm -hmm. the mindset that comes from it and the skills that come from it and apply it to other areas. Most definitely. And you played against Zion? Yeah, I did play against Zion. <laughs> How was that, that was, like, man? Yeah. That's huge. You know, like, not a lot of people can say I, I balled against Zion in his first year. It was the only year in college. If you're not a pro, that is. Yeah, um, that honestly was a surreal experience. So that was because essentially Duke was doing their tour of Canada at the time before he actually started playing. And it was interesting because at that point in time, many people were saying, oh, okay, this guy's performed well in high school. He's bigger than everyone in high school. But when he gets to the college level, that's going to change where he has to play against bigger, faster athletes. And that tour is when people actually saw how good, not just from like physical tools, but also basketball IQ, passing, dribbling, just the way he moves. And so to, to be able to play against him in person and guard him at one point in person, I was telling you off, uh, off camera that I, I have a video of like grabbing a rebound from him, which was pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, it, it just really shows you what someone at that highest level is like. And it shows the, the differences between the levels that exist. And some people are really just built to play that sport. And some people are meant to take all of the other things that I've mentioned that come from it and move to other areas. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, man. So let's get really get into Fit Drive. Um, break down the app to our listeners and uh, what the core competencies of it is. Sure. So FitDrive is an app that makes client management easy for personal trainers and fitness business owners. The reason why we started it and really the problem that it's solving is the current structure of the fitness industry, especially pre-pandemic. So if you look at the typical personal trainer, the way that that industry usually works is you do, let's say, an undergrad kinesiology or anything in that field. You get certified through a body like the National Academy of Sports Medicine, and then typically you go work for a gym. 
And then that gym will take between 50% to 60% of the fee per session, which is why the cost of personal training is so high. It's typically like a hundred a session if you're going to a gym like Equinox or further, but the trainer is only taking $40 of that hundred dollar session. Right. Yeah, and what wow. that does is that causes a ton of turnover and a ton of burnout in the industry. The churn in the industry for personal training is actually 80% plus 80 to 90% because the trainer has to work insane hours in order to cover their living expenses. And so there's been a trend for a long time from working a few years at a gym to going off and starting your own business. And so we see ourselves as FitDrive as the software platform that is enabling personal trainers to go out and run their own business. And that's been the seed. That's crazy, man, because I used to work at uh, Good Life Fitness and I, I was working in sales. And but I worked there my whole university career as a part time job. And I used to see how many trainers will just come in and leave and someone even last. So, for example, Good Life, right? Before you even start, you know, you got to get your certifications, but then there's prospecting hours that you have to do. And then once you get past your prospecting hours, you get your actual hours. But even as you're prospecting, you're not even getting paid for those hours. So some trainers will be there and they're not really being compensated the right way to get their clients. So a lot of them are new to the business. They don't even know how to really prospect. A lot of the people who go to the gym are regulars and they know their trainers. They know who they're working with. So getting your first client is, is extremely tough. So I can definitely see the... Uh, what you're trying to do. And honestly, seeing that from my first hand, I can totally understand how that pain is because a lot of like them more of my friends and they've expressed to me how they feel. So you're building fit drive right now. Um, let's talk about your background, right? Going into building fit drive. Um, have you, you know, you, you, you study computer science and business. Uh, why did you choose to combine both of them? And what is your like, background in fitness that uh, you've come into this uh, app with right now? Yeah. So let me, let me touch on the background in fitness. So prior to uh, playing ball for McGill, um, fitness was just a huge passion of my life early on. And mm -hmm. it started actually when I was diagnosed with a stress fracture to my spine in high school. Um, and that was super tough for me as any injury is both physically, emotionally, uh, mentally, but that really served as the foundation for my life in terms of coming back from that and taking the mindset that I applied from coming back from injury and taking it to other areas, uh, yeah. taking that short-term action towards a long-term goal. And so when I was thinking for ideas of, of starting my own business, fitness was just a natural fit. And later on, I actually got certified myself as a trainer through the National Academy of Sports Medicine. And then from the tech side, um, I've always just been interested in technology and finding new ways to do things, which is why I ended up minoring in computer science. And I took some business analytics classes as well as it had just started as a concentration. Um, and so I was actually recommended and I applied for this program at Stanford where they were, uh, I was able to take a class in tech entrepreneurship. And the mindset behind that was, okay, so I know I want to start a business. I know I want it to involve technology. Let's go to the place where uh, this is actually being done so I can learn from the best instead of uh, kind of being limited there. 
And so that was about a year and a half ago. And in that tech entrepreneurship class, I was actually able to meet one of my co-founders. We had our project was based on fitness and technology. Um, and we were working towards building an app, which pivoted and eventually became FitDrive. But uh, my co-founder, Milena is her name. She was coming off uh, five years of experience working in product and marketing at a few different tech startups. And one of them was also in the physiotherapy space. And so we just naturally clicked. Then she moved back to Canada and we met our last co-founder, Carter, who was doing a double major in physiology and computer science at McGill. So again, that shared passion for health and for fitness as well as the technical background and then we moved into uh the next 36 program last summer an early stage accelerator and then moved into the dmz so that's been the full full story to date yeah stanford's like stanford's huge that's like the pipeline of like all great entrepreneurs you know um i think snapchat's founder uh i think went there i believe yeah um, evan, evan spiegel went there a lot of like great entrepreneurs come from like that Stanford, like Ivy League background. How is it like being in that environment and, you know, absorbing all this knowledge from, you know, a great like school, business school and being around like California, like the whole Silicon Valley scene. How is that for you becoming in there as a first time entrepreneur? Yeah, honestly, that was huge for me. So I would say that was one of the biggest turning points in my life going from just having an idea and being passionate about it to understanding that you can actually make something happen if you apply yourself and if you put yourself around the right people. And so coming from Canada, which typically, especially Montreal, which typically has a more conservative mindset when it comes to things like this, uh, Stanford or Silicon Valley as a whole is the opposite. So they have a culture around failure and a culture around giving first that if you are uh, an aspiring entrepreneur and you have an idea, you're looking to get feedback, you're looking to connect with anyone, people will gladly introduce you to whoever they can to help you get off the ground because that's just ingrained into the culture. And at the same time, they force you to think bigger um, because one, one thing that they really say at Next, that's actually the reason why Next exists, uh, is the difference between the uh, GDP per capita of the US versus Canada and why there's a big gap between that. And they say that the difference between that is because of the amount of unicorn companies that are being founded in the States versus Canada, even though we're right next to each other. And the reason behind that is not that the US has more talent than Canada, it's really just that if you take an equivalent student at a school like Stanford versus a school like McGill, the McGill or the U of T student or the Ryerson student, for example, will most likely say, if you have, let's say, a talented technical student, they'll say, oh, I want to work for Google or I want to work for Shopify or I want to work for Amazon. Whereas the American student will say, I want to start the next Google. I want to start the next Amazon yeah. because they're surrounded by people who have done these sorts of things before. Yeah. Whereas Canada, we've been limited in that to date. And so being in that environment at the age I was at, at the stage in terms of looking for something to get started, that was the, the foundation for my own mindset shifting. And I've been able to run with that going forward. I think one thing we touched on that was interesting was the culture of failure. You know, we don't really touch on that as much. 
Yeah. You know, it's usually the culture of going for it, but we never really talk about the culture of being able to fail and bounce back. I think that's one thing Americans really embrace, whereas I'm not sure if that is as embraced in Canada. You know, um, it's kind of embraced to go, if you'd fail, go get a job. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not really ingrained in you to fail and try again. You know, so that's a really interesting point you made. Well, also, when it comes to those like unicorn companies, usually those are founded by someone who's second time or third time founder where those ventures may or may not have worked before because at the beginning it really is just you're learning how to start things like learning how to hire how to write code how to ship product how to market all of these things that you can then take those learnings and apply it to the next venture and you're just so much further ahead than if you were starting off from scratch and that is the mindset there okay this doesn't work then let me move to the next thing, as well as the typical model for VC in general. So VC, like, I think it's like 1%. <laughs> if you look at their investments, will end up making up like the vast majority of the return. And so they actually expect most of these companies to fail because to fail, those yeah. are the those are the standards in the industry. But mm-hmm. that's just not something that's generally adopted in Canada. Yeah, man. That's so true. Like even like the VCs, um, I read like one time a quote from a VC from uh, Sequoia Capital uh, up in, and they're like saying, you know, we invest in like 20 startups and we know at least like 18 of them are going to flop. One might IPO and might, one might return. And then the one that IPOs gets them like six, seven, eight hundred million dollars in return because they end up like performing well over like a certain number of years. So that yep. is that is big. Um, going into you know back to Fit Drive, right? So you got the idea. You Carter, Milena, y'all come back to Toronto. Um, what was like the first? What was the hypothesis you guys had coming into build like with Fit Drive, right? You had the idea. How did you go on about executing it and proving your hypothesis was right and proving yourself like? trainers do need this platform more than anything yeah so it's definitely taken a while and again with that same culture of failure any entrepreneur will tell you that the first version of the product that they build will not be the same product uh that they actually end up moving forward with so Mm -hmm. the just the concept of the lean startup by eric reese you want to put out an mvp a minimum viable product you want to test it out with real users get real feedback and then iterate and move forward so for us um our first thesis it has always been around the problem of remote training and giving a platform for uh, the professional or the influencer or the trainer to run their business but we've tried a few different types first. So we had started out actually with fitness influencers because one of the people who I had been in touch with at Stanford was a fitness influencer herself. And we were trying to connect that fitness influencer with their fans. So give a platform for them to have their fans subscribe, let's say to a fitness program remotely. Um, And what we learned from that was that the engagement at the end of the day on some of these fitness influencer subscription platforms isn't as high as you might think, even though they have a certain amount of followers. Usually the influencer model, I used to intern at an influencer management company, so I I was in this space for a little bit, but 
it works because the end user is willing to take an action. So let's say they're willing to buy merch or they're willing to get this protein powder or especially beauty and fashion is where it works the best. They're willing to buy the makeup or whatever the, the piece of clothing is. Whereas fitness is different because the end user doesn't necessarily want to work out they know that they need to, but they won't necessarily do it unless they're working directly with the person. And so when it comes to those types of platforms, you end up having issues in terms of retention and churn. So after launching that first version, um, we had actually moved to a different version of the app. At that point in time, it was called FYT. And that was a platform where a user could uh, perform a streamed class from that trainer some more like on-demand fitness videos that were pre-recorded because our thesis was that this would be more dynamic and that worked for a little bit so we had about 300 users on that version of the app and that we had a little bit of traction with but again the fact that it was not a direct relationship that it was essentially dependent on the end user to interact with software as opposed to connecting directly with the trainer was still an issue in terms of repeated usage and understanding that their alternative was just to go on YouTube and stream the same video on YouTube. And so making those conclusions, our next step was okay. Now we know that when it comes to fitness, the biggest thing is the relationship between the trainer and the client. And that software can only come in to help that in terms of automating tasks or in terms of making that easier. But at the end of the day, it comes down to the relationship. So when we moved into the DMZ, we went back to square one and realized, okay, we're going to go through this map. What are the actions that a trainer working with a client would have to take regardless of whether they're using software or not? And then how can we automate those or provide a 10x solution to the trainer to work with their clients? which is where we get to, the, to today. Interesting. And you actually became a fitness trainer as well, right? To test the product out? Exactly. So that's the other thing. When you're building out any, any product, honestly, uh, but especially when it comes to tech, you really want to make sure that you're solving a problem for yourself. Uh, otherwise, you'll end up having difficulty seeing the differences between whether your product is actually solving a problem or not. But at least if you are the user, you can say, okay, this works for me. Now let me find 10 people that are like me or 50 people that are like me and just move forward from there. And so that's definitely a lesson. We were talking about failure earlier. If you were to start a venture in future, I would always do something with a problem I had already experienced. And getting certified as a trainer honestly made things a lot more clear in terms of actually using this to work with my own clients and understanding how much easier that would make my life specifically. And if it's helping me program for my clients and manage relationships, then it will definitely help other people. Yeah, man. Like if you don't have that passion for what you're doing, it's so hard to have that stamina to keep going uh, when things get hard. And I remember uh, one example for me is like when I had started an e-commerce store, it was, um, Alex, remember I was running Living Create at the time? Mm -hmm. Like it was such a dope idea, like dope e-commerce, you know, we're selling everything, but I was just not passionate about like the home and living space uh, as I thought like it's easy to sell the essentials, like this is something people need. So of course you experience burnout faster and uh, your business isn't going to really survive because you're not really uh, passionate and 
excited to go hard at it every day because you don't really understand the customer you're serving. So you're just kind of like running on a hamster wheel, uh, essentially. I've seen that be executed before, you know, um, with the gentleman um, over at Squire. I know they became barbers just so they could uh, experience the, the barbershop um, life and see how they could properly fit their app around um, the barbershop experience. So uh, kudos to you for doing that, man. That's, that's actually really interesting. So um, I was doing office hours with Michael Siebel from uh, from Y Combinator. Oh, no way, man. One of the schools. Yeah. And he, he referenced us to Squire as a story to uh, kind of map our own entrepreneurial journey after. So it's, it's funny you mentioned that. Oh, that's hilarious. Wow. You got office hours with Michael Seibel? <laughs> you have to hustle any way you can, man. You just yeah. got to get ahead of people. <laughs> oh, what, was, what was that like? So, so he offers office hours or YC office. So Y Combinator for, for anyone that doesn't know, it's one of the best startup accelerators in the world. So Michael Siebel, who's the former co-founder at Twitch, he's one of the, uh, he's the CEO now. He was one of the partners. Now he's a CEO. And so they go around doing office hours at a bunch of the universities, especially in the States, back to the question about Canada versus the US. So uh, he was doing them at MIT and my brother happens to be be there right now. And so he was able to forward me the Zoom link. And then I just participated as an MIT student. Mm -hmm. Then they opened up extra office hours to sign up afterwards, which I was able to get in. So you really just have to find, you gotta <laughs> find finesse. a way. What a finesse. <laughs> to, yeah. To that was a fire finesse. You um, know? Yeah. And then when you do make sure that you actually make yourself known that you're there and ask a pertinent question that he can give a direct answer to. And that was really what he was trying to make clear throughout that entire interview, because he was very raw in terms of the feedback he was giving to everyone on the call, because he said he wished he had had more people be honest early on. In, in his own entrepreneurial journey so that he could learn faster. And at the end of the day, for him, the biggest things are like having a team that can execute and then launching as quickly as possible so you can get real data around what you're doing back to the lean startup, as well as really understanding the problem that you're solving because you've experienced it yourself. And those are lessons that, that carry to, to any, any entrepreneurial field. Mm. That's big. Is there anything else that you learned uh, before we move on from this? Um, I I learn from him every <laughs> in every conversation. Uh, he's he's definitely someone that I look up to in terms of what he's doing. But those those I would say are key, and then just focus as well. So he also teaches at uh, YC Startup School, um, and he has I believe it's a talk on product and on metrics and just understanding like you can be spending time on anything like let's say as an entrepreneur but understanding what is the key metric that's important to your business and what efforts are you doing on a two-week cycle whether it's development building out features or talking to as many users as you can but how are you spending your time and how is that actually driving the success of the business instead of doing all the other like multitude of things that you could seem like work, but are actually wasting your time. But there, there are tons of lessons I could go on. <laughs> mm, gotcha, gotcha. So what's the business model of MyFitDrive? 
Yep. So right now, the way that it works is the trainer pays us for access to the platform. Their clients get access to it at no cost. Um, so a subscription, monthly subscription model, depending on the amount of clients they're training. Uh, we're currently working on adding payment processing as well. So that'll be out next month, which means that the trainer will be able to bill the client uh, for their services. And the biggest thing here is that the trainer can bill a monthly subscription. So back to your point earlier uh, about the model of training, there's a lot of work that goes into it that usually the trainer does not factor into their price because they're only charging per session, they're charging per hour. Whereas what you can do by using software and just structuring the offering that you're giving is saying, okay, I'm going to give you as a client X amount of sessions per month these could be either in person or they could be live over Zoom or over FaceTime, whatever the case is. I can also send you programs now through our app. You can build programs, you can upload and edit exercise videos, and you can send that program over to your client. So that means they don't always have to be with you to perform a session. And then you can also factor in things like consultation calls or nutrition coaching or whatever those added value services are, and then bill that on a monthly basis. And that allows your income to be more sustainable as a trainer so that you can actually scale beyond the nine to five grind of just fitting as many hours in as you can per day. So uh, I, I really want to, you know, kind of like push back on some thoughts I have, right? Um, so for example, I, as a trainer, I have the workouts and et cetera, and this is remote, right? How do I, as the client, fine what if i don't have the equipment to use uh because usually i meet you at the gym what if i don't have the right equipment and the tools to really execute on you know what the trainer has told me mm -hmm. so again our app is used in both cases so if mm -hmm. the trainer was training you at the gym they would use it as a record keeping system so the trainer has access to the same record that you have as a client so that means you can perform the workout, you can keep track of it. And then when you're on your own, you can send that workout to complete. When you're saying that it's purely remote, so let's say during COVID, everyone's been in home, then that means that it's the trainer's responsibility to design a program that's body weight based. And so the trainer using their background can design a program that mimics what you would do in the gym, but using body weight or using things that are commonly found around the home, which is part of your role as a trainer to begin with. And so again, it's not really about the software, it's about the relationship and how can the trainer best provide the, the best program or the best routine to their clients based on their specific needs. Okay, got it, got it, got, got it. you. So there's a chat system in the app as well that lets you communicate back and forth, send videos, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I'm thinking if I was a trainer, like one thing that comes apparent to me is like, why wouldn't I just use iMessage, you know, and this, mm -hmm. I'm not a model and I'm just giving pushback, mm -hmm. record myself on, on the phone and send it through iMessage, have like a, a HubSpot a CRM where I just save everything and keep it moving. Yeah, and that is what some of them have done, especially pre-pandemic. So again, if you look at alternatives, you can use Excel spreadsheets for your programs, you can use email for your messaging, mm -hmm. you can use links to YouTube videos for your, your uh, demonstration. 
but then how is that actual experience as a client if you're getting sent things from all these forms or all these sources from an administrative perspective how do you keep track of all of your clients when you actually want to scale when you have 10 of these people and you're doing <clears throat> back and forth emailing and youtube videos and all of these things so the first thing that our our trainers who are using the app to train their clients have said is number one this is far more professional than anything that i've done before and it actually allows me to charge a premium instead of doing what i was doing before because the client can actually see the value that i'm providing them so that's number one and then number two on the administrative side the time that you would spend between all of these different platforms and keeping track of everything versus one, you may as well take that time and spend that training more clients instead of being bogged down in the details. So those would be the answers. Okay. Uh, gotcha. Gotcha. That was genius, man. That's, that's great, man. And you know, like you can't, you and in your, your team, you came up with the idea to really go build this stuff for clients. What are some things that you thought, your your user your 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 trainers are gonna need but you went to them and they said ah you know what edgar i don't think this is the best thing for me what is that one thing that you thought that you're so hung up on that ended up being like uh, unnecessary in the platform yeah that's that's an interesting question i think our mindset has really changed towards just every week so let's talk about like product management mm -hmm. we make sure that we speak to uh, our like paying customers and make sure that we listen to them in terms of the problems that they're having whether that's with our app or not and that's actually what drives our product decisions mm -hmm. so it's not necessarily that we go and we brainstorm ideas it's we listen to problems they already have and then try to optimize them so one of one of those, for example, would be like, let's say the whole Zoom movement. So one thing that we easily could have done is gone down the path of let's build the best live training software that exists as a Zoom alternative. And then we turn around to our, our users and we say, OK, like, would, would this be something that's interesting? And they say, no, in fact, I actually like using like Instagram live chat to actually host the session because that's more consistent. And if you guys did Zoom, it would honestly be very similar. So you may as well just use what you're good at, like focus on the professional side and the administrative tasks. And then if you have to integrate with any of those, sure, do that down the line. But understanding what features are actually driving value and what value they're driving for your users, that allows you to save a lot of time in terms of, let's say, product development. That's big. That's big. A lot of people think that, hey, I'm just going to create the new version of that when Instagram already has that, you know, right. that's a fact. Um, so one thing you're doing is, you know, you're serving a community with your app. Uh, how are you fostering new relationships um, with them to educate them about it? Yeah, that's a great question. So especially during COVID, we quickly realized that there's an education gap around online training or using digital tools as a whole because traditionally it's an industry where there wasn't much innovation. You could get by with your notes or your spreadsheets when you were doing stuff purely in person. And then when it moves all moved online, people were looking for sources of information. And so what we started doing right away is providing as many resources as we could, starting off with our Facebook group, which uh, has grown now to I believe 200 members. 
um, over the course of four months where we would just put out free content around online training and use as a base to, to relay with people. Um, then we created a full online training guide. So it's step-by-step everything from finding your first clients to pricing to using tools, including our software and beyond to run their business. We created that. That's available for free on our website if you register for our email list. And then on Instagram, we created an interview series where we would bring in, similar to this podcast, we would bring in uh, gym owners, fitness business owners, fitness influencers, and trainers, and interview them about how they were adapting to the pandemic and how their strategies were. So really just building community organically and trying to be as helpful as possible to the people who are, are navigating these issues. On how many customers have you acquired, if you don't mind sharing? Uh, downloads were, were 150 plus right now in four months. That's not too bad, man. Um, and are you paying to acquire customers or are you just like still in the organic phase? Still organic. So only, yeah. only organic to date. Again, we're very focused right now on just improving the product, listening to our early users, mm-hmm. um, and, and really focusing on building that core user base. A uh, paid acquisition is something that really only comes later down the line, which back to those uh, questions around like failure and what you should do <laughs> after having learned something else. Yeah. Many people will, will say just when you're trying to reach product market fit, focus on product market fit. And then when you're ready to scale, focus on scaling, but don't do both at the same time because you have limited resources and you need to make sure that you can actually validate that first stage before you move forward. It's, it's like that, uh, you know, Paul Graham, right? Um, he wrote that one essay, do things that don't scale. Mm-hmm. He was saying like, you know, and, we, and essentially you're doing it. It's the things that you don't think are going to scale actually end up helping you. And he references the Airbnb story, how, when they're in YC, they were asking themselves, you know, what's the difference between like a one-star experience and a two-star experience? So that when they'll go to a, a guest or maybe someone who's a host and say, okay, what's the difference between a one-star experience and a two-star experience? And then they go to the same thing to a guest and they'll try and get their host to do these experiences to get them more bookings. So they go to New York, they go to every host and say, why did you sign up for this? What did you like about it? What didn't you like about it? And this actually changed the whole business model. It changed the way they structure their whole business. And it's doing those little things that you might think they don't really move the needle, but they are like the one domino that you push that op- that just pushes everything else down and actually helps you get to where you want to be. So it's like those little things I think is the difference between good to great. Definitely. And you'll, you'll see that in the stories of the most successful companies that the reason why they became successful is they actually built something their users wanted. Mm-hmm. And they did that by focusing all of their time and energy at the earliest stages on listening to them and making the, that initial core user base happy. And if you can do that, if you can make um, 50 people happy, like a lot of people think about thousands or hundreds of thousands but if you can make 50 people use your product every day then you can definitely find another 50 and another 50 of that Mm -hmm. same type of individual it's when you try to scale early before you've even done that that you run into issues yeah 
100% agree. Uh, switching gears a little bit, you know, um, one thing that we all are are black men in tech, you know. Um, what's been your experience being a black man in tech, especially after this George Floyd situation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's a really interesting question. I would say normally I'm the type of person, especially just coming from an athletic background, that I, I try to like put those things to the side and just be heads down executing. Um, Cause the way that I am is I, I tend just to put like no limits on what I can achieve and just go for it and, and just mm-hmm. come into the room as though I can do it. But then everything obviously happening of late um, brought many of the issues that have been around for quite some time to the surface, uh, at least publicly. To and the fact that the pandemic was going on is that everyone was at home to listen and they couldn't hide from it essentially. So I'd say navigating, especially the, the, the George Floyd incidents for me and for many of the black founders that I, I'm, I'm close with was tough because they had to manage their own um, personal just emotional levels because you open your phone and every single time you feel as though you're you're essentially that could have been your brother that could have been your relative Mm -hmm. and you're dealing with that and yet you still need to go into work you still need to execute on what you need to do um and so it it was tough it was definitely tough and what i did to kind of mediate that is two things actually so thankfully again we're a part of the black innovation fellowship program at the dmz which is a group of eight to ten startups or or co-founders of startups that are working towards building uh technology driven ventures and so we have one of the things that we have is this founders anonymous where we go and discuss just anything that we need to talk about in terms of shared experiences and on that day we were just able to vent to each other (laughs) about everything that was going on and kind of get through that together and then i did the same thing with a group of my friends who are uh, also related to the field like black black individuals in business whether it's finance consulting or tech mm-hmm. they're in that as well and so they we were able to share what we were going through together get through that as a group and then go back out and, and do what we needed to do yeah man uh we did a podcast um called being black in america it's like a two-hour podcast where you know for the first time ever in these type of situations, you know, of course you've had other shootings like, you know, Philando Castile, Eric Garner, Michael Brown, but I don't know for this one, man, it really hit different. I remember like even just trying to work, it was so hard. I mean, I was sitting on my table, my desk. Uh, I couldn't concentrate just because it was so painful, you know, like, I don't know what it was. I think it was like a mixture of the pandemic and also nothing was happening you know there's no distractions there's no sports there's nothing to really give you an escape so you really have to deal with it right then and there but that was like one of the worst thing i've ever witnessed in my life i mean that was a murder more than anything like that was like a public lynching like a modern day lynching i would say so yeah man and speaking about biff you know how is it like being in uh in a group with other like black founders uh, who are building a technology space, a technology driven business? 
Yeah. Um, just to touch on your, your earlier point about how, how things like how gruesome of an event that yeah. was the, the craziest part is that it's not the first time that that's happened. And it's not the second time that that's happened. That happens often. It's just the first time that it was put on a public stage exactly. <laughs> in that light. Um, and the fact that it was so gruesome at the end of the day, it just forced there to be, you couldn't say, oh, he meant to be doing something like this. Like there wasn't even a question. And so that's what spurred the action that we've seen with the protests and with the initiatives that are now coming out. And honestly, because of that, sadly enough, we're going to see change at the end of the day. And we've already started to see it. So let's say the Black Innovation Fellowship. So around the same time, they actually launched a $1 million funding goal to expand the program and to give uh, access to more Black entrepreneurs so that they can also get access to the DMZ and the different supports that we have. And within a week, they achieved 400K of that a million goal um, from other entrepreneurs who wanted now to support the cause, whereas before maybe that may have been difficult. And actually in the past week, we just got essentially the program just got another 250K from the city of Toronto because people are now listening. And if you can have an initiative that, and here's the biggest thing, the initiative has to already exist. So if you can have uh, leadership in initiatives that can actually support Black entrepreneurs or Black professionals in general, right now, those are getting a ton of attention as they've never seen before. And you can really leverage that momentum going forward. Whereas in the past, you may not have had the same uh, same impact or same experiences. Without a doubt, man. Without a doubt. Um, man, shoot. Actually, I was going to touch on something about basketball, but I was like, I don't even want to go there. <laughs> You know what I'm yeah, saying? <laughs> you know, just even bringing this up, man, just been, it has me thinking again, like, raw, like, that actually happened, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, what I was going to ask, actually, was about um, Kyrie and LeBron, you know? Because, um, now, not in, in basketball terms, but in terms of their... Um, efforts, I guess. Efforts, right? exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, Kyrie didn't want wanted to sit down and not play, um, whereas LeBron was ready to... to get back in the gym and get back on the court. You know, I'm curious, what was your opinion on that? Yeah, that's interesting. I think, again, in these situations, everyone has their own way of making a statement or of going about adapting to what's going on. And so many of the larger companies, they came out and made statements. Um, and many of the black individuals, some of them would make a statement. So like Tristan Walker had moved on to the boards of some pretty high level companies. I think Foot Locker was actually one of them. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have people. That's Shake Shack, right? Yeah, Shake Shack as well. Yeah. Shake Shack as well. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes, and this is something that, that we had talked about in in our conversations in the Black Innovation Fellowship is that sometimes just going out and doing your work successfully is a statement it's in itself as a black individual so let's say for example uh lebron or let's say a black ceo of a tech company 
for them to stop working to make a statement versus for them to go out and be a successful CEO, which one of those is actually more impactful? It's, it's a question and it's a personal answer. Um, and so for Kyrie and LeBron, I just think it's, it's really what each one of them is most comfortable with. I wouldn't say that I go either way on, on that issue. Gotcha. Yeah, man. I also, I also want to say this, Edgar, right? Like, for example, Tristan Walker, he can go out and do his job. He's been doing his job. But then there's also a bunch of other Black professionals who've been doing their job for decades, right? Uh, top professionals, people who are qualified to be CEOs and uh, executives, and they need to have a seat on a in a C-level position or on a board or one of those high-level positions, but they never get the recognition. So now you have people taking notice, right? So this is also just to like, you know, kind of challenge what you're saying, right? Don't you feel like if, let's say they were to just, you know what, I want to go out there and be do the best thing I could do, it's also going to like not really force the white populace's hand like okay like they're just gonna keep working they're not really gonna ruffle the feathers if they're doing that we get to keep our seat at the table as the sea levels and the board when you can actually come and say hey no listen we actually are tired of this we've been overqualified we've been looked over people who are less qualified than us are getting these positions um what do you say about that right like because people have been doing their job, but then if they don't make a stand, they're just going to keep being in the back seat. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I think at the same time, though, so let's let's talk about an initiative like the Black North Initiative from, from West, West Hall. Hall. Yeah. Yeah. So that was an effort to get a certain percentage of, of the workforce um, for, for these companies. So the CEO is actually making commitments to hiring or maintaining uh, black individuals, both like hiring within their companies, but also within executive positions. So when they're making those decisions, who do you think they're going to go to? They're going to go to the person who's been executing on their, their job. So I think there's a mix. So let's, let's say back to the, the, the black. So we're talking about a black founder, them executing on their job is them being a success, which is the entire goal of this at the end of the day, mm -hmm. and them being successful is inspiring other people to come up and with their hiring practices, they can bring in more people as well. If you're within a company, yes, you can advocate for sure. So not saying anything against people advocating, but if you excel in your position and you propose initiatives, given what's going on right now, you can get people behind you and you can get more recognition than let's say previously. And you can use that to then fuel advocating for others. So I really think it just depends on the individual and their comfort level, because you never know what people are dealing with internally um, and making a stand in their own way, but not setting a standard for how someone else should act more so understanding based on your own values and your own level of comfort, what you can do in your position, and then just doing that. Yeah. I, in regards to LeBron versus Kyrie, I find it very interesting because, you know, LeBron has done a lot for the community, you know? Mm -hmm. He has the I Promise School, you know, he has a media company that's predominantly di like diverse, you know, um, 
he's done a lot of efforts for the community, you know. In this specific instance, I find it very, very tough because he, on his shoulders, rests a lot of power, right? If LeBron chose to sit down, I personally believe the whole league would sit down. Mm-hmm. What do you guys think? In that sense, yes or no? I, I think so too, man. Like, it was kind of disappointing for LeBron that he had all the power, oh. but then... Yeah. He didn't do anything. He just said, I'm not going to put a name on the back of my jersey. I'm not going to sit up because take it in. Even though there's Black Lives Matter on the court right now and all the thing and everything, if they stopped the league, they would have legit arrested Breonna Taylor's, uh, not arrested them, but like it would have been more of like a... There would have been more pressure. Pressure, exactly. Pressure. Got you. But so going back to what I was saying, um, the a lot of industries depend on the nba you know what i'm saying um there's mom and pop shops um real estate around the stadiums um media coverage tv deals international tv deals relationships like it's a big industry you know what i'm saying if he chose to sit down and the nba follows that is a whole cycle that starts to explode a whole lot of pressure it's a big way that starts to happen if he starts to sit down you know so if that was to happen, that would cause an immediate amount of pressure. The, tr- the president would have to uh, respond. Everything would have to actually get a response. What you're saying is, does have truth to it, you know? People will respect representation in successful manners. People respect money, right? Money or power or violence, you know? But when it comes to properly protesting money's what moves the washington team did not the washington football team the mo- that's what it's called right washington uh, football team now yeah i'm not i'm not good at sports when it comes to football football's not my shit you know what i'm saying but they didn't move their, their at all till nike started pulling their jerseys correct me if i'm wrong and fedex and fedex exactly so money's what moves it's not the actual statement that moves. You know what I'm saying? We know about China, but no one's doing anything about China right now because mm-hmm. it's not affecting U.S. dollars. You know what I'm saying? So until money's actually being affected, Michael Jordan was great, but he didn't do anything in terms of actual change because there was no money being moved. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Representation is great, but until the money's affected, nothing moves. Yeah. So... That's my opinion on that. You know, and finding ways to financially protest. You know, when you look at a company that's being racist, you can just pick, pick it at them and say, hey, you're being rude. You're being mean to us. doesn't really change their money. But if you go to the advertisers, to their actual manufacturers and say, hey, we're not going to put pressure on you now to cut off that company, then that company is going to start making some moves because then their actual pockets are going to be affected. Money that's- talks at the end of the day, man. You know, money, money's what, like, money's what matters. Imagine if all these owners, like, you know, what would be great, man? You know how, Kyrie you were saying we should go start our own league? I was so with that, you know, because they are the, they are the elite. They're the talent. They are, imagine if KD, LeBron, all the elite players went and started their own league, right? Things would, like, legit change so quick. They'll change so fast for the better of helping uh, the black community. You know, and the one thing also, Edgar, I want to touch on after is, you know, ownership in the community, right? Like 
uh, having more black entrepreneurship. Imagine if all NBA players uh, had an ownership in their own teams, like Kyrie, LeBron, KD, Steph, start their own league. That would be amazing. You know, it's like, and we, we are the product. We are like the ones who make the team money. They're paying 200 million. Imagine how much the owners are making at the end of the day. So this will like bring back the dollars back in the community and inspire other people towards ownership and not just being the ones who are the producers, but we're the owners. Mm-hmm, definitely. Did, did you have a question there? <laughs> no, I just wanted to get a comment. Some, <laughs> I, 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 conversing, man. Yeah, you know? I just wanted some commentary on, on your end. Like, what, what did you think on, on, on that? Like, if the, if the NBA players went and started their own league? Yeah, um, ownership and entrepreneurship is definitely something that I believe in for sure, whether that's on the athletic side in terms of starting leagues or in terms of individuals going out and starting their own ventures. So I think that's definitely something that is uh, positive. I think again, with, with the comments on the league, I think the NBA in particular, as opposed to some other organizations, has been one of the better ones. So let's take like the example of Donald Sterling back in the day, who was actually removed from the league because of his comments around race. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would say that there have actually been some positive steps there, maybe not pulling all of the dollars as as you had mentioned that may have been a more uh, abrupt statement than just listing Black Lives Matter, let's say on the Toronto basketball bus or on the jerseys and things like that. Um, but the NBA removing one of their owners, who's one of the most powerful people in the world because of issues around race, is making a statement towards all the other leagues at the end of the day. Um, and so I think there's just ways to manage it. And there's, there's definitely many different options. And some of them can be good options, but there's, there's always different ways that you can come to the same outcome depending on, again, the, the preferences of the individuals involved. Yeah. So, so getting um, into like the entrepreneur side of, uh, of the Black community, why do you think there's like a lack of representation in, in tech for Black entrepreneurs? Yeah, so that is a, <laughs> that's an in-depth question for sure. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, like, like, representation is a systemic issue so many people wonder around like like what what why is the product the way that it is it's because of the way that the system is so Mm -hmm. tech is typically a field where it takes let's say uh high-end university level education in specific fields to get to so then how many of those individuals were in the universities to begin with then take it back to the high schools how many people have the resources necessary to get there and how many are actually being directed to those career paths in the first place because many of them are being directed towards other things that wouldn't necessarily lead to the same impact. So essentially what we were saying for some of the the black tech founders specifically is the hurdles that a black founder in tech would have to go through to get to the same place as an equivalent 
uh, Caucasian founder, let's say, they have to get through so much more and develop so much more grit and resilience um, that naturally you just end up with less at the end of the day. And then that goes back to towards um, investment at the same time. So investment and, and, and entrepreneurship as a whole is highly dependent on network. And so let's take Silicon Valley. The reason why Silicon Valley has had so many issues around diversity is because let's say we take that prototypical Stanford founder who goes off and starts their own company. Well, when they look to hire, who are they going to hire? Their same circle of friends, which probably look like them. Let's say it becomes successful. Well, they're probably going to garner investment from the same circle that looked like them. And then when they invest at the end, let's say the IPO, they actually become successful. Who are they going to invest back into? Well, it's their same network. And that just keeps rolling over and over again until you get to a point where they're disproportionately less than that same type of individual. So back to the idea of ownership, the way to get around that is by having uh, individuals like black individuals who become successful investing back in the next generation and your point on money talks at the end of the day if you can put capital into early stage ventures led by tech founders uh, those will eventually scale and then they'll put their money back into the next generation and it'll just keep moving forward from there yeah I couldn't agree more also I think you know like the, the marketing for being black in tech isn't the strongest, you know? Like, there wasn't, for me personally, you know, I feel free for y'all to speak. In high school, there wasn't really, like, not a tech entrepreneur that I was like, yo, I, yo, him? I couldn't wait to be him, you know? Like, there's not mm-hmm. that representation um, that we see, you know? And th- our, our thought, what we see become our thoughts, and our thoughts become things, you know? So I think representation in media makes a big difference as well and who we see as pathways to provide for our families is uh, a big gap in what when it comes to getting those group of maybe 100 black kids it might be someone who's actually interested in uh calculus or something like that and, and math and science and whatever math, exactly yeah. and then he may find his way into tech organically but there needs there needs to be a guy who's actually like all right Tristan Walker's there. Mm-hmm. How do I get there? You know what I'm saying? Like exactly. me, per- me personally, like I, I saw Boomerang and saw that he had an ad agency, you know, even though he did whatever, whatever in that movie. I don't know if y'all remember it, but mm-hmm. uh, I was like, oh, all right, that's the lane, eh? I didn't know that's the lane. You know what I'm saying? And then, yeah. then I started researching into, okay, that's the lane that could take mm-hmm. to become a fly black adult, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I think the marketing uh, uh, there. A lot of representation is in there. I mean, everything as a as a thing of black kids, especially growing up in North America, like me coming from Kenya, mm-hmm. I mean, education was paramount, right? So I knew I had to go to university, I had to study hard, I had to get great grades. I mean, that was like no question. Um, but coming in, I, I can look at it and we spoke about this in the Being Black in America episode, it's like all you see is like entertainment or sports. I mean, that's the only way out. And Edgar, one of the things you said is systematic racism. And oppression is one thing we also spoke about with the housing, Jim Crow, and not getting the best uh, education and opportunities. So you don't have access to the math and science that can get you to Stanford or the exposure to computer science that can get you to build that app idea that you have. 
um, you're getting the worst, the worst. You're getting the crumbs while they're eating the good food and you're getting like the crumbs, right? And legit, I mean, you know, figuratively speaking, that's actually what happened. You're like, you eat the worst food, you have the worst surrounding areas and this is what happens. I mean, for me, I kind of came into the tech space just by solving an itch to my own problem with the sneaker deck idea. Um, I was at Ryerson did the business program, but I, in high school, no one said take coding classes or do computer science. I mean, I had to go and teach myself these things like through code school and sign up for those classes just so I can understand how to do these things. But it needs to be part of our culture. It needs to be part of like, Hey, when we have our kids, you know, our sons and daughters, like, Hey, take a math route, take a science route. Uh, you can do this. Don't just think about sports or as a gateway to, and it comes from like your environment too. But once you, as a parent, once you know that it's easy to influence your kids towards dreaming bigger things than just, you know, the, what they see as the predominantly black industries, which are dominated by black people, which is entertainment and sports. We need more of those people taking control and building the future technology and platforms. Yep. Exposure is key for sure. Like you need to be able to see someone that's doing something in a position that you can aspire to be, especially early on. And that's why people like Tristan Walker, like Michael Siebel are so important because they prove that you actually can do it for that young black person with an idea and they don't really know what path to take. They can look to a person like that and figure it out. And the other thing is really as you said, being present in the community on a grassroots level. So let's take the example of, of sports we were talking about. For many people growing up, um, even when, when I played, I played in this uh, organization called Red Rush. They're, they're a basketball and leadership program where they use sport along with community service and leadership activities as a vehicle to move on to the next step. And if you can go to on the grassroots level when people are still learning about themselves and exploring opportunities and give those options like learning to code or like learning marketing or, or having examples of people that they can relate to in those stages, then you'll definitely be able to, to inspire a generation of, of individuals to move forward towards those fields. Without a doubt, without a doubt. Uh, working towards wrapping up, man, um, one thing we want to make sure we cover is raising money, you know, you've been able to raise money um, in your business. What has been some key elements that you could give our listeners as advice when it comes to pitching and raising money and building a relationship with a VC or angel? Yeah, so the, the first thing to make clear is we have not actually raised angel or institutional yet. Uh, that may be coming very soon, but not to date. The, the capital that we've raised has been through the accelerator, so Next Canada, as okay. well as the McGill X1 accelerator, so more on the grant funding side. Okay. When it comes to raising money, though, at the end of the day, number one is building relationships early on before you actually need them. And that's something that I would recommend to anyone getting started. Uh, investing <laughs> getting investment is similar to finding a co-founder you're entering into a long-term relationship or partnership with that person and at the end of the day it's going to be an issue of fit between them and you 
Do they believe in you and your ability to succeed and your ability to execute on this opportunity? And do you believe they're the right person that can actually help you get there beyond the capital? Um, so that's the first thing. And then also storytelling. So learning how to tell the story of you and your company when it comes to the problem that you're solving, when it comes to how your solution is unique, when it comes to the timing, why has this not been done before? What makes it different this time for all the other companies that have tried your idea already? Why is this different now? Is the market actually big enough? Because when it comes to VCs, as we mentioned, they're looking to have one company having a 100x return that covers for the rest of the portfolio. So you have to be sure that you're actually building a business that is built to attract capital, or maybe it's just built to, to bootstrap. And then at the end of the day, your team, because they're not just betting on you, but what team have you been able to put together? Who is that core co-founding team that regardless of if the product changes or the market changes as it grows, you have a team that can adapt to that and actually execute on it. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. How do you, man, I always find it challenging when people say, this build relationships. Let's build a relationship. You yeah, know? just go just go make a relationship with a VC, you know, like, and, and you know, the thing is, is one of the first things it's, oh, let me, this is an example you see a lot, Edgar, right, is let me pick your brain on something, you know, let's go for coffee. You know, I'm sure all these guys are getting a lot of coffee requests and I'm sure they have their own coffee machine. They're like, rah, I'm, I'm stuffed with coffee, right? What are some ways that, you know, as Alex said, I, I know you already asked a question, but I just wanted to add a commentary in there, like, how do you do it? Yeah, so what you said is very true, especially VCs are always getting requests for coffees or for meetings or quick phone calls. At the end of the day, building relationships comes down to value. So what value are you giving them? Not what value can they provide to you? So let's say the coffee example, if you're asking to pick their brain, you're asking them to tell you about something that they know you're asking for value from them, but what can you give? And many people think that because you're not at the same stage as them, you can't offer value, but I'll give you an example of something I did early on in, in my career. So when I was still at McGill, I was the co-president of the McGill Entrepreneur Society. And what I would do is reach out to McGill alumni entrepreneurs and invite them to speak uh, to the students. And it's actually a great opportunity because many of these people had graduated and had wanted to come back and give, but just no one had reached out to them. So I was able to offer value to those people, to have them come in, to have them speak. And some of those people have been instrumental for me in terms of introductions or future conversations later on. So that's one example. Um, during Next, so Next is really interesting because they put you in front of some uh, incredible VCs, angels, et cetera. They, they come in all the time as guest speakers to the classes. And the way to stand out there is, again, they're, they've, they're in front of thousands of entrepreneurs. The way that you impress them or show value is by actually doing your homework. So will you show up at an event that you're there speaking at and ask a very targeted question that only someone that had actually read through all of their LinkedIn and all of their blog posts and everything that's available online about them could ask. 
that shows that you're serious and that shows that you value their time. And that question alone is enough to follow up on, connect with them on LinkedIn and then book that future call. And so those are the first two things. And then the last thing is if you're an early stage entrepreneur and you want to raise capital down the line, creating a monthly update email that goes out every single month where you can actually show your progress over time to all of the individuals that you've been speaking to. And that's how you can actually prove that you've been listening to their advice, that you've been applying it, and that you're using it to continue moving. When you finally ask for something, when you finally ask for an opportunity or an investment opportunity, these are people that now know you for months or sometimes even years based on that exchange of value. Got you. That was some big gems there. You know, the monthly update was great. And then reaching out with specific details from doing research on them. So do you know that they're, so they know that you are serious. Big gems, big gems. Audience, I hope you're listening there. Write that shit down. Yeah, man. Even, even I think Al, even, uh, with what we're doing, you know, uh, for example, having this podcast with Edgar, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't know you. I didn't know you. I mean, I read about you. Uh, you had an interesting story. I, I know my friends know you and you're the DMZ at the Biff program. And I was like, you know what, let's have him in the podcast. And like, just like this, uh, us featuring you, you giving value to our audience, we're, you know, creating content and you're in it that's in a mutual exchange and it's just like a future relationship that's built from something that there was great synergy for, to begin with. Yep, that's exactly it. And, and when you reached out to me, you referenced for, uh, publications that had been released. So it showed mm-hmm. you actually taken the time to go through that. Whereas yeah. many people, they don't do that. They'll just say, Hey, would love to have you on my podcast. And you know that you've sent that same message to a hundred other people of the same type. Mm-hmm. But if you actually put the time in and spend time doing the research and, and crafting a message that someone will relate to, they'll appreciate that. And it definitely stands out from the crowd. Thanks, man. Appreciate that. Respects. With respect, respect. All right, man. So working towards wrapping up, man, where can people find you? Yeah. So um, people can learn more about FitDrive on our website. So that's just myfitdrive.com. We're also on the app store at FitDrive. Instagram is at myfitdrive. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about me, my personal Instagram is I am Edgar Brown. Um, most of that right now still has to do with the company. But later on, I plan on sharing a little bit more about the entrepreneurial journey and things are going on as well. So that's where you can reach us. All right, all right. Well, that wraps up the podcast. Remember, your hustle is what you can control. So control your grind and control your life. Peace.